Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works, and you know that. So um, let us move right on, because we've got a lot of very important material that I want to impart to you today, material that will be immediately usable information and um, an understanding that you can deploy into your five F's right away. You can deploy right away into improving your relationships with your money, with your social life, with your friends, with your family, uh, with um, uh, with your faith and with your body. And um, those things that we will start off with right away is a uh, an analysis of the difference between intelligence and wisdom. Now, you hear this all the time, don't you? You hear people, oh, she's so intelligent, or, or you know, uh, somebody else, you know. People use those terms interchangeably. Oh, he's a very wise person, but they're not interchangeable at all. They could hardly be more different. Uh, it's as, as if one is, is cheese and the other is carrots. Uh, they are, are, they're not even in the same food group. Intelligence and wisdom. So think about that for just a second. How would you explain intelligence and wisdom? Let me try. The generally accepted measure of intelligence is what we call IQ. And there is a standardized test or a standardized system of testing. And, uh, you know, average, the, 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 the median there is, is about 100. And really, really, really high intelligence people are 150. And people who are sort of below at the borderline of functionality in a modern economy, you know, maybe 70 or something like that. That's the IQ. Now, um, I should indicate that um, uh, it's been made very controversial for about the last 20 years, since about 2000. And, and that's because the soft social sciences, uh, like psychology, for instance, and, uh, and those kinds of areas, they've been badly corrupted by progressivist thinking. Uh, this all started when um, Charles Murray and the late Richard Hernstein published a book called The Bell Curve, Intelligence and Class Structure in American Life. They published that in 96, and it did cause considerable uh, stir and a lot of controversy and turbulence. And I think the process began with that book. It didn't really swing into visible action till about 2004 years later. But what began to emerge was a downplaying of the importance of intelligence. Why is that? Well, because uh, Murray and Hernstein in the bell curve uh, proved, and one of the reasons that they became so hated and the book became so vilified um, is because, yes, it did prove very effectively and, um, and incontrovertibly that intelligence is tied to the class structure in America. Now, 
please listen to this very carefully. I don't want there to be any confusion at all. When we speak about class structure today in America, we're talking um, chiefly about university elite. That's really what class structure is. People whose value system is derived from their years in university, people whose prime social relationships derive from their university days, uh, perhaps even their marriages and family are tied to universities. Uh, the sports they're interested in, the people they're interested in, the topics they're interested in, and above all, the kind of activities they engage in. And so, uh, uh, yeah, there, there are many universities in the country, entry to which almost guarantees you a place, you know, in the top 10% of the country's um, elite, not necessarily in earning power, uh, because many of the business elite, people who've made their money and are making their money in business, are not necessarily university-centric. But when we speak, when, when Charles Murray and Richard Hernstein spoke about class structure in American life, they're mostly talking about the university. And yes, uh, having IQ does gain you access into the university. And if you've got a high IQ, you'll make it onto the faculty of university and you'll remain in academics and that'll be the, uh, the life you choose and the life you live. Um, what is IQ? IQ is cognitive ability, the speed of processing. Um, it doesn't mean you're good with people. It doesn't mean that, it certainly doesn't mean you're wise, but I'll come to that in just a moment. Um, and so flying an airplane always involves IQ. People, you know, let me put it this way, you really do not want to get into a commercial airliner being flown by somebody with an IQ of 85. You really don't want that. Just because the amount of processing that's needed, the speed with which you've got to assimilate data from many sources, and yes, most of the flight is under autopilot, but when something goes wrong, then you really need IQ. I don't think anybody has ever published the IQ of, um, you'll remember, uh, pilot uh, Chesley Sullenberger. Um, he was at the time a 57-year-old pilot with U.S. Airways, and uh, on January the 15th in 2009, he took off from LaGuardia Airport on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 uh, on his way to Charlotte, and then from Charlotte right onwards to Seattle. And uh, within a few minutes after takeoff, um, Sullenberger, Chesley Sullenberger, known to his friends as Sully, um, who, uh, by the way, had been a fighter pilot. This is one of the best things. If flying a commercial airliner takes a high IQ, flying a, a, a combat jet fighter considerably more. And so uh, airliners are always, airlines were always thrilled to hire pilots whose prior training had been in fighter aircraft with the United States Air Force. That was Sullenberger. Soon after the plane took off, as about everyone in the whole world knows, uh, it hit a flock of Canadian geese. Both engines were knocked out. It didn't have a lot of altitude yet. And um, Sullenberger made what I, I think, and I was very interested in this at the time, and I followed it. Uh, in, in my view, and um, 
Uh, I have flown airplanes. I, I have had a pilot's license. It's no longer active. But um, in, in my view, he saved that, uh, that airline. He plonked it down on the Hudson River. And, um, yeah, a lot of things went right. But he also knew in, in, in very, very speedy processing. He didn't have a lot of time to make all the decisions and uh, make all this happen. That's pure IQ. It's nothing but intelligence. And training, of course. Well, you can't be trained if your intelligence is low. That goes without saying. Um, if you ever watch a really good chess player, you're talking about very high IQ. That's for sure. And um, here's the, uh, the, there's bad news and good news, right? The, the good news is that you really do not need anything beyond a broad range of acceptable IQ to live a wonderfully successful life, to make plenty of money and to have good friendships and to have a terrific family and to look after your body and to have a spiritual understanding as well. You don't need a very high IQ for anything. Um, the truth is, and I've done a lot of research on this and a lot of working on this, a very high IQ is in some ways an obstacle to success. And I've spoken about this in my books and uh, and in various podcasts in the past. Um, so the good news is that, you know what, your IQ just really isn't that important unless you desire entry to the academic and intellectual and university-centric elite of the country in which you live. If that's the direction you want to go, then, yeah, maybe. If you'd like to work on the faculty of a university, high IQ would be a big asset. But if you'd like to go to university to learn uh, structural engineering, you know what? Your IQ is just fine. You don't have to worry. If you're listening to this show, your IQ is just fine. Um, are you 150? Yeah, probably not. Neither am I. It, it doesn't matter. But neither are you 85 or 90 either. You're definitely in the above average. And again, it doesn't matter. From 90 to 130, it's all just fine. No problems at all. Above that and well below that become uh, a little bit questionable. And uh, it is true that men are overrepresented in the two tails of the bell curve. Over on the one side where we're talking about very low IQ, barely functional, more men than women. On the very high IQ side, more men than women, which is why there are very few uh, women chess grandmasters of chess. And yes, you know, we're all used to the, oh, it's because of sexism and they don't make it welcoming for, no, it isn't that. It's that it takes, to be a chess master takes a very high IQ. And in the same way that a high school with, um, shall we say, 3,000 boys is going to field a better football team than a high school with uh, 35 boys, right? It's, it's simply clear because the distribution of football talent also follows a bell curve. And if you've got a school of 3,000 students, you have a much higher number of top-rate players, people with high football talent. If your high school is a small private high school of 35 boys, um, you know you, you don't have a lot of choice. You take the, the best out of the 35, but they're probably 
maybe none of them are even as good as the best players in the other schools. So uh, that's just a reality. The um, the upper end of the IQ uh, bell curve is m- men are disproportionately represented there. And so, yes, you have more men as chess grandmasters. Um, so the uh, the good news is, as I said, that IQ is just, it's not that important unless you want to be a fighter pilot or you want to be on the faculty of a university uh, in certain areas, by the way. That's, it's not true. If you want to be on the faculty in diversity or gender studies or anything, good luck. You can do that with an IQ of 62. Uh, it's not a problem. But um, uh, anything else, you need high IQ for those areas. But for success in life, you don't need high IQ. You just need a broad average. You just got to be like most of us, and you're just fine. What's the bad news? The bad news is you pretty much cannot change your IQ. It's pretty much fixed in terms of what you receive from your parents, how you came out in the genetic or the ovarian lottery. That's all it is. Uh, can IQ be changed at all? Yes, over several generations. So in other words, um, if you're talking about the IQ right, of the, uh, the Lappin family into future generations, it depends who... Uh, Susan and my children marry and who our grandchildren marry. And and then, you know, several generations down the road, there may well be a Lappin with uh, an IQ uh, up in the higher ranges. And there also may be one with the IQ down in the lower ranges. That's all there is to it. In what ways can it be changed? Well, partially who your children and grandchildren marry. Um, and and secondly, the extent to which sexual restraint is practiced in your group. Now, you might say, what scientific studies support this information? You know, did, are there any scientific studies that show that when a group practices sexual restraint, the IQ of that group goes up? No, there are no, none that I'm aware of, and for very good reason, and they'd be wildly politically um, unpopular and incorrect. Uh, this is ancient Jewish wisdom information, and uh, everything that I have seen in my life seems to support that. Um, the, uh, the, the popular culture's view of IQ started getting extremely uh, nervous and agitated around about, as I said, the year 2000. And the reason was because uh, it began to be perfectly obvious that not only was a class in American society um, predicted by IQ, but it also seemed as if taking into account certain statistical provisos and uh, within the limitations of uh, the meaning of statistics and and means and uh, and averages, uh, there seemed to be some correlation between racial groups and IQ. And that was red hot. That was information that got everybody very, very unhappy um, because it seemed as if there was a significant difference in IQ between uh, Northern Europeans in the world at the upper end and Southern Africa Africans on the other end, sub-Saharan, sub-Equatorial Africa, and um, 
as this sort of information began to be assimilated, it got people very upset. And again, none of this matters to you or to me on an individual level um, because there is no specific correlation on the, in that sense. In other words, uh, I can be part of a, a group. Let's say I'm part of an um, uh, Indian immigrant group in America who happen to have, I think, perhaps the highest uh, IQ. And I, at the same time, could end up, you know, being not a particularly high IQ individual and vice versa. So on an individual level in, in our lives, you and me probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But from an academic point of view, and also from a political and public policy point of view, it was very, uh, very disturbing. So, for instance, one of the things you saw happening from about 2000 onwards was trying to de-link IQ from attainment at American universities. And so, whereas uh, the, um, the uh, representation of various racial groups in Ivy League universities um, you know, was Asians were disproportionately up there. Whites were kind of pretty much where they should have been. And um, non-white groups uh, tended to be underrepresented. Why? Well, because university isn't the be-all be all and end-all of life. But if it is to you, and don't forget, our, uh, uh, our uh, political leadership class has become disproportionately university-centric. Uh, I, you know, uh, General Eisenhower, not university-centric. President Truman, not university-centric. Of course, way back before that, Woodrow Wilson in the United States of America, President Wilson, very university-centric. And uh, um, Bill Clinton, very university-centric. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden, well, sort of political political life. I mean, he's never been anywhere else but in politics. But again, the people who he surrounds himself with and the people who have um, advisory, strong advisory role, you know, university-centric world. So, so yes, if you believe that university life is important, it's the be-all and end-all, and that somehow you and your children are nobodies if you don't get a degree from a prestigious university, well, in that case, I'm afraid IQ does count. And so, not surprisingly, as I say, when it became a question of groups, and because IQ is so linked to university access, entrance, and graduation, um, the AP tests, the ASAT tests, all of these things, very IQ-centric. And so, um, what happened was that uh, non-white people were represented in smaller than their numbers in the population, and that's when everything changed, and all of a sudden nothing was more important than racial representation, and you all know the history of the last 23 years in the United States of America, intensifying over the last five years and intensifying even more over the last two years, and that's the direction in which it's been going. And so um, uh, does... IQ guarantees success? Well, as I said, uh, no, it's, it depends entirely. I mean, you can have a very high IQ and be kind of non-functional in, uh, just in terms of the skills you need in life. So no, IQ only is important if you want a career in academia, 
uh, if you want to be an airplane pilot and if you want to get a, uh, a qualification, a credential, a degree in mathematics, um, perhaps in medicine as well, and a few other professions as well. But uh, even that doesn't guarantee success. Guarantee success comes when you have all your five Fs in life moving forwards, growing onwards and upwards, and in balance with one another. When your finances and your family, when your physical fitness and your friendships are all in balance, along with your faith, you've got little to complain about in life. Everything will be going well. But that in no way depends on IQ. None of that, uh, in none of those things depend on IQ. So that's a, that is a sort of brief summary of IQ. And now I'll give you a brief summary of wisdom, and you'll be able to understand the difference between intelligence and wisdom. But before that, uh, please visit the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, do join all of us as a happy warrior. Go ahead, read up about it, and uh, if you go on the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, You'll find how to get access to the Happy Warrior website, which is wehappywarriors.com, and you too can become a basic member of the Happy Warrior community. I've told you in the past what the benefits of that are, so I won't go over it again. We don't have time right now, but uh, go ahead and let us stand shoulder to shoulder together with one another, all as active Happy Warriors in order to improve our lives dramatically through our five Fs. Um, wisdom. Okay. First information, I remember I told you you can measure IQ, and by the way, a lot of controversy now because uh, since about 2000, science, which has become very corrupted by woke progressivism and secular socialism, uh, has tried to downplay the significance of IQ it's tried to uh, denigrate the validity of the IQ test, and it has tried to uh, disconnect IQ as anything predictive. And the answer is, you know, it is predictive of certain things, not of general success in life, but it is certainly predictive of certain things. And so today it's considered very bad manners. It's very hard to get find out your IQ or anyone else's. Um, as a matter of fact, psychologists now are extremely uneasy about even administering the IQ test, which everyone used to do. There was a time while you were at high school, you, everyone had their IQ tests done. No more. That's not done because of the sensitivity about, oh, it's going to come out that different groups. Well, yeah, if you do statistical calculations, you will see that different groups have different IQs. Yes, um, there are some very brilliant brilliant people that, I mean, just in in the very tiny universe of acquaintances that I have in people in um, Zimbabwe, people in South Africa, but statistically it is true that in sub-equatorial Africa, the IQ runs at about 70, <laughs> which is, that doesn't mean any individual person is tarred and feathered, but in, to whatever extent, statistics is a tool, and it is a tool, that is a reality. Um, Sweden, uh, North Europe, IQ much higher than that. 
So these these are things that uh, are very real, but also very sensitive. Oh, when it comes to wisdom, uh, there isn't actually a, a way to measure wisdom, right? Because wisdom is outside the area of science, and science is all about measurement. And so, uh, if there's no way to measure wisdom, uh, what is it? How do you know about it? Well, let me give you a, uh, a clue. Wise people can recognize wisdom. Now, that's a little bit um, problematic because people without wisdom, well, they pretty much don't recognize wisdom. And, uh, and that is why I think it was the Australian philosopher Karl Popper who was talking about this idea, you know, being able to recognize wisdom and so on. And he said, look, uh, if a, a thug with a gun pointed at your head um, is, uh, is, is about to shoot you and you start talking to him and you explain the, the morality of taking a life and you explain that it could impact his life and you basically give a wise analysis of why he shouldn't shoot you, uh, you know, he is going to shoot you because it, it, it takes wisdom to recognize wisdom. Uh, wisdom is also uh, using a phrase chosen by me for this purpose. Wisdom is knowing how the world really works. Wisdom takes into account past and future as well as the present. As a matter of fact, uh, wisdom understands that the present is really the process that converts the past to the future, excuse me, that converts the future to the past. Now, how do we distinguish between areas that respond to IQ and those that respond to wisdom? How do we do that? How do we distinguish between areas that respond to IQ and those that respond to wisdom? And there are some areas, many areas, that sort of need a mixture of both. Well, the answer is, if it is more physical, then it's going to be a, an IQ intelligence thing. If it's more spiritual, and spiritual includes anything to do with the human being, with free will, the choice-making decisions that humans uniquely possess, all of that is going to involve wisdom. In other words, the more human-connected the issue is, the less likely it is to respond purely to intelligence analysis. So... Um, you know, perhaps it'll be best if I give you some examples, and that'll be uh, more helpful than trying to come up with better definitions. Um, so, the way that electrical currents behave in, shall we say, semiconductors, that's an IQ issue. It's an intelligence issue. Uh, experiments in molecular biology, that's IQ. Uh, how to design an airplane wing for high altitude usage with high load bearing ability, that's IQ. Uh, writing code for computers and software, that's IQ. Um, how about wisdom? Wisdom is much more tied to life success because you can be a very, very good computer coder and a very good aeronautical engineer and have a totally messed up life. But if you have wisdom, then you don't have a messed up life. So wisdom is very tied to life success. Um, you want to know about building and nurturing a marriage? 
This has nothing to do with intelligence. This has everything to do with wisdom. Um, economics, the whole area of economics, shockingly, in spite of the fact that for the last 100 years or so, there's been an attempt uh, to move economics into the area of science and rename it econometrics because, you know, measuring is what science is all about. So we measure economics. So there's a tiny little bit of economics that is IQ-based, the statistical analyses and so on. But basically, because economics has to do with the financial behavior of human beings, it does require wisdom. <coughs> the fact is that two human beings can be exactly the same. You know, theoretically, you have to make this a thought experiment, but uh, they can be the same in age and earning history and skills and qualifications, etc., all the way. And after 40 years of a career, <coughs> they could have wildly different net worths. Why? Because saving and investing is an issue of character strength. It's not IQ. The person who spends all his money on uh, consumer items, fancy cars and jewelry, um, it's not that he doesn't know that there's information about investing. It's that he doesn't have the wisdom and internal fortitude to restrain himself from spending and to save and invest. Now you're talking uh, wisdom, not intelligence. Um, sales, if you want to succeed in sales, in business, in entrepreneurial activity, 80% wisdom, 20% IQ. Uh, leadership, leadership in the military, leadership in business, leadership in your family, leadership in, in your church, 80% wisdom, 20% IQ. Uh, what's the IQ part of 20%? You know, things that uh, you become knowledgeable in, in in terms of management techniques and so on and so forth. That's all basic IQ. But uh, the skills of leadership, 80% wisdom. Uh, so how do you increase your IQ? Well, you don't. What you try and be happy with, if IQ is really important to you, you try and make sure that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have higher IQ, and even that, there's no way to guarantee. Um, how do you increase your wisdom? <laughs> well, you're doing that, in my view, you're doing that right now, because the central theme of this show, the Rabbi Daniel Appen show, is understanding how the world really works. And uh, there are a lot of people who have very high IQ and very low wisdom. There are some people who have very high wisdom and rather low IQ. There are people like that, but it's a little less common. It's much more common to find very intelligent people with zero wisdom. And um, one of those people turns out to be, in my view, I don't know him personally. I don't, I don't even know people who know him. Uh, do I? Well, maybe I do. But, um, but uh, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, right? Very intelligent, no question about it. Very high IQ, Probably 150, I think he once said. But um, wise? Uh-uh. No, why do I say that? Well, because last Monday he gave a speech at the Lowy Institute, which is a think tank in Sydney, Australia. By the way, their entire uh, function is globalism and, uh, you know, one worldism and so on. Anyway, he spoke for them. And um, uh, what he spoke about was, um, well, 
here's, well, let me give you one of his sentences from his speech. And by the way, the Lowe Institute has a website and you can go on and, and actually see his speech exactly and listen to exactly what he said. He said, I tend to see China's rise as a huge win for the world, said Bill Gates. I mean, that's 20% of humanity. So the idea is he sees the world as one place and China's rise is great for the world. Look, China's rise is not very good if you're an American. It isn't because America's influence, and that means the strength of your dollar and, and many, many, many aspects of being an American are going to diminish dramatically the more that China rises. But Bill Gates sees it for as a world. Now, I have to tell you that um, there is a, a marvelous verse in Genesis chapter 10, verse 5. And uh, I don't know if you want to hear it in the Hebrew. Here's how the um, King James translates it. By these were the islands of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families in their nations. Uh, I wouldn't use the word Gentiles. I would have said by these were the islands of the nations divided in their lands. Anyway, the key thing is the word islands, and, and let me tell you what ancient Jewish wisdom has to say about that. Ancient Jewish wisdom says that God's plan for humanity was a, uh, a pattern of islands. In other words, not literally islands in the ocean, but each nation its own island, obviously with connections by air or by ship, and obviously overland, leaving the island analogy. Everyone, obviously connections, but the idea is that each island should each nation should be able to develop according to its own wishes and according to its own inclinations. And then all the other nations of the world are going to be able to watch each other. And that way, little by little, we will learn, we will see what works best, what doesn't work best. And so the God-centric view of the world is that um, we should be a world of many different nations, uh, trading with one another peacefully, not fighting, but trading, and very opposed to the idea of one unified world government. Very, very opposed to that, because that defeats the whole concept. And, uh, and that, of course, is exactly how the founders of the United States of America, who, by the way, were very wise people, they did know how the world really works. And the Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Those founders were wise. Um, they was, what they said was, we're giving more power to each individual state. Each state must have the right to do its own thing. But uh, that way, the idea was the different states would look at each other, we'd see what works, we'd follow that, we'd see what doesn't work, we'd know not to try that. That's how it works. But strengthening the federal government at the expense of the states is a process that's been going on for a long time in the United States, and it is a very negative idea. The federal government has grown in strength, the states have been weakened time and time again. One of the reasons that Donald Trump was so hated was they recognized that he understood and was in favor of state strength. Uh, DeSantis of uh, California, excuse me, DeSantis of Florida understands that. 
uh, Gavin Newsom of California, who may well be the the Democratic presidential nominee in 2024, uh, very much believes in ex- extension of centralized authority. Sacramento has been getting stronger and stronger and stronger in California politics. Um, counties and cities have become considerably less strong. So that's an idea. If if you think in terms of, well, the globalism is the world and we're all in this together, you're not a very wise person. That's just not the way things work well. And yes, the United Nations certainly had dreams of being a government with real powers over the whole world. Of course, the people there believe that. How could they not? Um, but the longer that takes, the better it will be. Um, so, uh, when Bill Gates says, I tend to see China's rise as a huge win for the world, uh, I mean, that's 20% of humanity. Uh, yeah, uh, China's rise is not a huge win for the world. It's a huge win for China. Uh, China rises, great win for all the ch- people of China and China itself. Um, uh, he says, in the United States, we have per capita gross domestic product, five times of what China have. So, we have a disproportionate share of the world's economy. Really? Like, who who says how much should it be distributed? Ah, redistribution of wealth. Aha! Now, now we see. Uh, again, to be a socialist means you're not a very wise person. And it's as simple as that, really. Uh, we only have to look at the history of socialism from the Tower of Babel onwards uh, to know that that's just not something that works really well. Um, and so... Um, Uh, says Bill Gates. You know, I do think the current mentality of the U.S. to China, and which is reciprocated, is a kind of lose-lose mentality. If you ask U.S. politicians, hey, would you like the Chinese economy to shrink by 20% or grow by 20%, they would vote, yeah, let's immiserate those people. That's not an English word. Um, Not understanding that for the global economy, the invention of cancer, drugs, the solution of climate change, hey, you know, we're all in this together. No, that's not exactly uh, the way the world really works. And uh, that is the way the World Economic Forum in Davos really works. That's the way Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum thinks. And that's largely how uh, intellectuals in American academia think. Um, the, uh, during the interview, Gates also said that the United States is politically in a weak state adding that countries like China now need to play a bigger role in world governance. Well, I don't think I have to point out the flaws to you in that. And uh, I think you can see for yourself that if we're talking about uh, intelligence, yeah, no question about it. Uh, Bill Gates is a superbly competent software coder. Well, he used to be, isn't now. But he was unquestionably very, very bright guy. Wisdom, not so much. And so happy warriors, remember what you need to be um, proud of and you need to be happy to have and what you can grow and increase, which you cannot do for your IQ, is in fact your wisdom. And uh, I think a very good first step for that is becoming a happy warrior, as I described earlier, and being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Until next week, I want to wish you all a week of growth in your families and in your faith, in your friendships, in your fitness, and your finance. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.